friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. At the end of March, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law House Bill 1557, also called the Parental Rights and Education Bill. Critics call it the Don't Say Gay Bill, and we're here today to discuss whether or not it is constitutional and what it means. And we're honored to be joined by two of America's leading scholars, two great friends of We the People, and two thoughtful commentators to help us understand the best arguments on both sides of this important issue. Joshua Matz is a partner at Kaplan, Heckler, and Fink, and co-author of Uncertain Justice, the Roberts Court and the Constitution. He and his team have filed a federal complaint against the bill on behalf of Florida parents, teachers, and students. Joshua, it is wonderful to welcome you back to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join the conversation. And Eugene Volokh is Gary T. Schwartz, Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law. He's the author of the textbook, The First Amendment and Related Statutes, and founder of the Volokh Conspiracy blog. Eugene, it's wonderful to have you back as well. Always a very great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Joshua, let us begin with an important question. What does the law say and what does it mean? I'm just going to read one relevant sentence uh, from lines 97 to 101. Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. Tell us what that and other parts of the law say and what they mean. Thanks so much, Jeff. You know, and I think the text of the law is absolutely the right place to start here. One of the claims in the case is that the law is unconstitutionally vague. So I'm going to tell you what the law says and how it works. I'm going to struggle a little bit to tell you what it means. We actually think that's one of the problems with the law. But I'll highlight the specific ways in which I think the law creates some real uncertainty in ways that uh, have quite rightly caused a lot of alarm and led some people to derogatorily refer to it as the don't say gay law. So as you mentioned, what the law most immediately prohibits in its relevant part is, quote, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity. It says that that may not occur at all in kindergarten through grade three or for students above that, all the way presumably up through the end of high school in a manner that is not, quote, age appropriate or developmentally appropriate, end quote. And at some point in the next year or two, the state will issue standards to define what's appropriate for students in grades four through 12, um, but the law goes into effect immediately. And so that, that's, that imposition actually takes, takes effect in, in July. So that's what the law says. The way the law is enforced is that if the parent of a student has a concern about compliance with these requirements, they can either go and file a complaint with the school, and if they don't get a satisfactory or timely resolution, They can go to state officials and get a special magistrate appointed, or they can just file a lawsuit directly against the school board seeking damages, seeking money damages on the theory that the violation of the law that they would allege entitles them to some kind of financial recovery. So that's the basic operation of the law. Let me just sing a few notes about what we think the concerns are here, and then maybe Professor Volokh and I can go back and forth because I'm sure we'll have some different thoughts about how this works in practice. Here's where I would start. 
This is not a sex education law. Florida already has laws that govern sex education and that require that any extra education about human sexuality occur in an age or developmentally appropriate manner. And we're perfectly, everyone is perfectly comfortable with that rule. Um, so this is not a law that aims at sex education. That's already taken care of. This is a law that goes further than that. It prohibits something else. It prohibits, quote, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity. So one big question in thinking about this law is what counts as, quote, classroom instruction? Is that something that's part of the formal curriculum that is created by the state or by the school board or by the teacher? Or does it instead include essentially anything else that happens in the classroom? Interactions between teachers and students, interventions by teachers in disciplinary matters, uh, times where the teacher is just talking about their summer vacation or their free time, uh, moments where the teacher is answering off-the-cuff questions from students or during recess. So one set of questions is around what it means for something to be classroom instruction and how much conduct this covers. And there's at least some indication that it isn't just limited to formal curricular instruction because it also refers to third parties and not just school personnel. And ordinarily, we don't think of school personnel and third parties as engaging in curricular instruction. So there's some suggestion that it goes beyond what the teacher says, that it covers all school personnel and anyone else that engages in something like classroom instruction. For example, wonder if a parent comes in during career day and talks about their job and makes a reference to their spouse and how their spouse has provided such loving support for them. Are they providing classroom instruction in the meaning of the statute? The second potential issue that I would identify here is what it means to provide instruction that is, quote, on sexual orientation or gender identity. That's another really uh, complicated term to parse. And you can imagine a lot of questions here. Presumably, it doesn't just mean on being LGBTQ. Heterosexuality is a form of sexual orientation. You know, adhering to and, and, and identifying as the sex you're assigned at birth or being cisgender is a form of gender identity. And so when a statute prohibits any instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity, that could reach an enormous amount of stuff. If you think about all of the ways in which a student in a classroom might learn about what it means to have a sexual orientation or a gender identity. And I'll give another hypothetical. You know, imagine that a teacher assigns their students a book. You know, this is a kindergarten class. It's a book about a kid who comes home and their parents are there and they tell them about their day and all the crazy adventures they had at school. A question is, if the student goes home to their mommy and daddy, is that a form of instruction on sexual orientation? And if the student goes home to their mommy and mommy, is that a form of sexual orientation? Um, And if one of those is seen as a form of sexual orientation and the other isn't, then I think you've got some real questions about whether the law is discriminating by really only singling out variations from what is presumed to be the default sexual orientation or gender identity. The third uh, and final area of ambiguity I identify, and there's, there are others, but these are the main ones, is what it means for education to be age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate. So the law does provide that the state will provide standards to give some guidance as to the meaning of those terms, but those standards don't have to come out for a couple of years. The law, however, goes into effect in July, which means that starting in July and after that, parents can potentially sue their school boards for damages if they feel that all the way up through the end of high school, classroom instruction on these subjects is occurring in a way that is not age or developmentally appropriate. And obviously people might have a lot of differences of opinion about that. So I'll add one just final thought, and then I want to pass it back to Professor Volokh, who I'm sure will also have some thoughts on the meaning of the law. Um, Because of all these ambiguities that we see, 
that many other people see. One of the concerns is that where every parent in the state, every parent of a child in the state, can sue the local school board for money damages if they think something inappropriate has happened, there will be a massive chilling effect. This is where the idea of don't say gay comes in. It's not that the law expressly prohibits teachers or anyone else from using the word gay, but it's that by having such a broad, vague, indeterminate prohibition on what happens in and around schools and classrooms, the anxiety is that teachers and schools will be so scared about what the law might mean, and many of those fears may well be reasonably placed, that they will err in favor of just abolishing any recognition whatsoever of the existence or reality or integrity of LGBTQ people and families. And the result will be to essentially erase and write those people out of, of the narrative and of the life of the school entirely in a way that really does, in fact, prohibit teachers, principals, and so many other people from literally even saying the word gay. And so that's a quick primer on the law and some of the concerns that led to our lawsuit. Thank you so much for all that. Eugene, you've heard Joshua's arguments about the vagueness of the phrases classroom instruction, sexual orientation or gender identity, and not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate. Uh, what do you think the law says and means and what is your response? Uh, right. Well, let's just step back a little bit and think about two ways of writing statutes. One way is you might think the tax code way, although maybe even the tax code isn't fully this way, which is you define all the terms and you have a very long statute, maybe a whole volume of the, uh, of, uh, the United States code that's, that's all about all of the various details. Um, even there, there may be some ambiguities, but you try to make it as unambiguous as possible because, you know, there's a lot of money uh, uh, turning on that and people need to know what, what they can do. That's, so that's one way. And there's a lot to be said for that way. There's another way, which is you set forth uh, relatively general terms and then you count on courts to give them meaning. So, for example, the copyright statute uh, provides an exception for fair use. And it says, well, fair use, here's some general guidelines, some general factors to consider. But we, it was developed by courts in the first place. We're going to leave it to courts as well. Uh, and then there are mixes, like the Copyright Act is an example of a very long statute, but some parts of it do leave a lot of decision-making to the courts. Historically, by the way, most American statutes uh, have been really fairly general and have left a lot to, uh, to courts to interpret. This seems to be a little bit in the second category, although not entirely. So it's true, classroom instruction might be ambiguous. If I just say in class... Uh, uh, tomorrow, my law school class, uh, uh, oh, and I'm going, going out with my wife tonight. Or if I were gay and were married to a man, I'm going out with my husband tonight. Is that classroom instruction on sexual orientation? I'm inclined to think not. Um, uh, on the other hand, if I were to teach a class about sexual orientation in the law or even one particular class session or even half an hour of my class session, that sounds like it may be classroom instruction, at least on sexual orientation in the law. So I think this is the kind of term that has considerable meaning. It's not like classroom instruction. What on earth does it mean? Now, we have a pretty good sense, but, you know, there may need to be some working out by courts as to, as to its meaning. That's what I expect will happen. Likewise, what is on sexual orientation or gender identity? I totally agree that that includes heterosexuality uh, and non-transgender status as well. Uh, my sense is most is, is that most of the references to just ordinary heterosexual life, which is the majority of human life, uh, uh, is uh, uh, not going to count as classroom instruction. 
but there is some uncertainty as to what that means. I, I don't think that there's that kind, same kind of uncertainty as to sexual orientation or gender identity, which after all are terms that are used routinely in anti-discrimination statutes and the like. Then there's this question about state standards. And as I interpret the statute, it prohibits two things. It prohibits classroom instruction, again, whatever that means, on uh, sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through grade three. And then it separately prohibits in a manner that is not a age appropriate or developmentally appropriate in accordance with state standards. So my sense is before there are state standards published, that second prohibition just doesn't kick in. Because nothing that I might teach if I were a seventh grade teacher would be uh, not appropriate in accordance with state standards because there are no state standards that tell me it's inappropriate. But once there are state standards, I would have to adhere to them. Um, so, and the, the, the last thing that I wanted to mention about the purely interpretational question uh, is about the uh, third parties. I think it's quite normal to have instruction by guest speakers. So if I were to invite, if I were a, a second grade teacher and I were to invite a guest speaker who's, who's going to be instructing the students about, about uh, uh, say, uh, lesbianism or uh, being transgender, then in that case, that would be prohibited because one could indeed have a guest speaker instruct. On the other hand, if the guest speaker is talking about uh, uh, what, what it's like to work uh, to be a justice of the state Supreme Court, and in the process mentions, and by the way, I decided a case having to do with sexual orientation, or for that matter, my, uh, the speaker is a woman and she says, my wife uh, is a real, was really supporting me well on this. I don't think that would count as instruction, whether it's coming from a third party or from school personnel. So that's what I think uh, uh, is likely, to, we're likely to see. As with many, many new statutes, and certainly as with constitutional provisions, which are famously left to courts to decide in considerable measure, First Amendment being one example, um, there's going to be some judicial decision making. There's going to be some litigation and some of the costs and some of the uncertainties of litigation. But I imagine that, that things will settle down pretty quickly and there will be a pretty clear uh, line. As with all lines, there'll be some vagueness along the edges, but still relatively clear line as to what counts as in, as instruction, whether by school personnel or third parties. And then we'll also, ex presumably, we're going to have state standards on this uh, uh, with the very same forces that pr produce the bill, presumably would produce, uh, would cause the standards to be produced. And then, of course, the question will be, what the state standards are like. Uh, maybe the state standards are very bad or very vague. That would be bad, but we'd have to wait for those standards to appear. Now, there's a separate question of even if it is vague, is that a constitutional problem? And I'm not sure it is, but I think uh, 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 we're quite right to, to talk first about the interpretation of the statute. And then I'm hoping right now, perhaps we're going to turn to the constitutional issue. Thanks so much for that. And yes, indeed, let's turn to the constitutional issue. Joshua, your complaint argues that the vagueness of the law reveals its discriminatory purpose and effect, that it causes tangible harms to LGBTQ parents, teachers, and students, and that it violates the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and the First Amendment right to receive information and the First Amendment right to freedom of expression. Tell us about those constitutional objections to the bill. Absolutely, Jeff. And, you know, before I before I turn to the constitutional issues, it probably makes sense to spend just another minute on the on the statutory interpretation. But I, I will say this about the vagueness point, because it will come it will come back to it. A law is unconstitutionally vague under the Constitution, under the Due Process Clause. If uh, a reasonable person, an ordinary person wouldn't understand what the law allows and prohibits 
or if it invites a regime of arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. And as I think we'll see as we talk about the statute, both of those concerns are fully implicated here. Um, and, and I think it actually makes sense to go back to some of what Professor Volokh said, which I thought was very helpful. You know, the, the, the first reaction I have to what he said is, you know, of all the interpretations that might be adopted, I, I would love it to be the case if an interpretation as narrow as his came to prevail, you know, to the extent the law is allowed to stand at all. You know, if it were really limited in the way he suggests. But I have to be honest, you know, I, I read legal texts for a living, so does Professor Volokh. You know, the, the moves that he made to arrive at that interpretation are hardly self-evident. And there are a lot of arguments that I have no doubt will be made, and some of which already have been made, that it applies a lot broader than that. And so on the face of the text, you know, Professor Volokh's confidence in his interpretation is admirable. But I have to say, as much as I would prefer so narrow an interpretation of the law, I think a lot of people have understood it to apply a lot more broadly. And that's not because they're failing to read the statute correctly. It's because the statute is extraordinarily broad. And while it's true that we allow standards, broad standards in some area of our law, sometimes the presence of those standards, sometimes they're so broad that it raises constitutional questions. And sometimes they're so broad that it invites unconstitutional discrimination. And that's the kind of concern we're talking about here. And I, I should emphasize before, you know, and I will get back to the vagueness point, I promise. But one of the, the real difficulties is that not only are Professor Volokh's interpretations of the statute hardly self-recommending, there, there are many people who read it differently, is that they're really inconsistent with what the people who wrote and enacted the statute and many of the people who support the statute say and believe it means. And so it's great that a law professor out in California reads the statute this way, but a lot of officials and legislators and the governor in Florida have read it quite differently. And when you look at how they talk about how the law will operate, there have been very clear homophobic and transphobic comments, very clear statements about wanting to prevent gay people from feeling like celebrities, uh, the suggestion that if you oppose this law, you must be a groomer or a pedophile we're looking to try to somehow recruit children into sexual activity. Uh, these are some of the ugliest tropes of a frankly bigoted worldview. And the notion that acknowledging the very existence and reality and integrity of LGBTQ people and their families somehow inappropriately sexualizes children or somehow recruits them to the cause. I mean, that, that kind of talk, that kind of thinking, which is all over the place right now. If you if you live in Florida, if you live in some of the states where these bills are being considered, that rhetoric isn't just reserved to ugly corners of the internet. It's increasingly reserved to sort of open discussion in certain political circles, and it's increasingly embraced by some of the folks, including those who wrote and enacted this law and who gave those as reasons for why they wanted to do it. And when you see them talking about how they expect the law will work in practice, none of them believe that this would prohibit a kindergarten teacher from assigning a book in which a kid comes home to their mommy and daddy. But they most certainly believe it prohibits assigning a kindergartner a book in which a student comes home to her mommy and mommy. And so it's th the idea that this law was written to discriminate and to chill and to terrify and to scare teachers and students and parents into feeling like they can't acknowledge at all any you know LGBTQ identity, um, that's not some fanciful idea. That's not an overreaction it comes from a reasonable reading of the law, and it comes from the messages that a lot of people are hearing from people who wrote the law and are charged with enforcing the law. And, and that's where I think it's important to emphasize the, the sort of social meaning and context of this statute, separated in a lot of important ways from, say, the Copyright Act or some of the other types of statutes that Professor Volokh had in mind. 
And, you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, the short term, the immediate effects of this law, you know, he seems, Professor Volokh is sort of fairly copacetic about like, oh, it'll take a few years and it'll work itself out. You know, I might have a kid myself in school in just a few years, uh, my husband and I, you know, and it really concerns me to think that if, if a student in their class says, you know, why does Johnny have two daddies, that there could be a real cloud of legal uncertainty, that the school could suffer money damages if the teacher gives any kind of an answer at all to that question. And that's what parents are facing in real time. Parents are afraid that their kids will be going to school and learning that their families and they are different and less than and worse. Their parents are afraid that they can't themselves participate in the life of the school. Teachers are afraid to talk about their own families or to engage with their students in a way that creates an open and welcoming educational environment. And schools are scared that parents on every side of the political spectrum are going to sue them in really expensive ways uh, that lead them to adopt policies that really chill LGBTQ rights. And we already, I don't have to guess about that. We see it happening all over the state of Florida. So I, I would just put all of that on the table as food for thought as we think about the questions Professor Bullock raised and as we reflect, and I'm happy to keep doing this, on the vagueness of the law. And, and I would end with just a couple, I want to be specific because Professor Bullock identified, you know, well, if the teacher came in and instructed on lesbianism, that would be prohibited. I don't know any teachers who in kindergarten are coming in and delivering day-long lectures on lesbianism, but fine, if that's what he thinks this law was enacted to prohibit, so be it. You know, and then he says it would presumably be fine if they just said, I'm going out tonight with my same-sex spouse. I have to tell you, there are a lot of teachers in Florida who don't feel the comfort about that that he does, uh, and for good reason, and for good reason. And there are certainly parents who I am confident would sue a school if a teacher did say that in class, and it could create some real short-term harm. So I would just, I would highlight, and I want to give a couple hypotheticals because this might sharpen the issue here. Think about a circumstance where Johnny comes into school and one of his classmates raises their hand and asks the teacher, you know, why does Johnny have two mommies? What can happen next? Or a circumstance where a teacher asks a bunch of first graders to draw a picture of their families. And a few of the students draw pictures of their families that include same-sex parents. Is the teacher allowed to put those pictures up on the classroom bulletin board with all of the other kids' families? Can none of them go up on the school board because instructing kids to draw their families that include opposite sex and same-sex marriages is inherently instruction on sexual orientation? Or imagine a teacher that wants to have a picture of their spouse on their desk, same sex or opposite sex, and sits behind that picture the whole day so their students see it the whole day as they look up at the teacher instructing them. Is that instruction? These are not hypotheticals. These are questions that thousands of teachers are going to have to answer, and school districts and parents and students. And, and this is where, I'll be honest, it's not clear to me that the law is quite as clear or easily amenable to a resolution as the professor suggests it might be. Thank you so much for all that. Eugene, uh, you've heard Joshua's arguments, including the fact that the law's discriminatory purpose and effect are revealed in its legislative history, and he raised a series of hypotheticals, including uh, the claim that teachers can't answer questions about why Johnny has two mommies or can't post pictures of same-sex families or photos of same-sex spouses without uncertainty about whether they're violating the law. What is your response? Well, so... This is actually a good opportunity to sort of start talking a little bit about the constitutional questions because they they end up, of course, overlapping. Um, so one thing, again, to keep in mind is that uh, uh, there's a good reason why many courts are reluctant to look at legislative history. Lots of legislators say lots of things. Uh, lots of public advocates say lots of things. The real question is going to be how 
judges interpret the statute because that's their job. That for even in the vagueness analysis, we usually interpret the statute determine whether it's vague or not as it has been interpreted by courts, including maybe by this very court, rather than just looking at the text. That's the nature of our of our legal system, maybe different in other countries, which take a more civil law approach where it's all about the words, at least supposedly about the words of the statute. But, uh, uh, but we have judges figure out what a statute means, and I wouldn't focus uh, unduly on, on what uh, state legislators say. So how might a judge interpret? So one way of thinking about it is, imagine that Mr. Matz had uh, uh, on the wall behind him right now a picture of himself and his husband. Would we think he is in, this is instruction on sexual orientation? I doubt it. I doubt it. Uh, I just, I don't think that fits within the normal English language meaning of instruction, generally speaking. And I think courts are likely to interpret it this way. At the very least, it's, it's something that, uh, uh, that I, I would hesitate to say the statute is unconstitutionally vague until we give the courts a chance, uh, uh, to, to interpret it, uh, that way. And on the other hand, if, uh, if a student asks, well, what does it mean to have two mommies? It does sound like he's asking for some instruction. One way of thinking about it is, let's imagine that there was a law that prohibited instruction on religion in public schools. If a teacher were to have a picture of himself at the, uh, at the I don't know, the, uh, uh, the christening of his child on his uh uh, or even had a Bible on, on his own desk. I would say that's not instruction. It's true some people might look and say, oh, this person must be Christian. Maybe they're interested in Christianity as a result. Not instruction. On the other hand, if somebody asks, say, you know, uh, teacher, I've heard all this stuff about transubstantiation. What is that? Or even there's Catholics and Protestants. Tell us of the difference between Catholics and Protestants. Then maybe the teacher might say this could be instruction, not in religion to be sure, but instruction about religion. And you could imagine a school saying no instruction on religion uh, from first uh, to third grade. And then um, beyond that, only in a matter that's uh, uh, consistent with state standards. So, but now let's turn a little bit to the constitutional question. So the vagueness doctrine is tremendously important when the government tells people what they may or may not do on pain of being thrown in prison or on pain of them personally being sued. But when we're talking about the government issuing instructions to its political subdivisions, right? the uh, uh, governor issuing instructions to agencies, let's say, if, he's in, if he controls them, or for that matter, uh, a uh, state issuing instructions to local school boards, the due process clause of vagueness doctrine just doesn't apply. And in fact, it's quite common for within a hierarchical organization, whether it's a, uh, including a governmental organization, to have general guidelines. You have to provide efficient service. You have to be polite to customers. So without, without any clear definitions, it would, be, it would be clearly unconstitutional if that were a criminal statute, but not when the government uh, uh, tells, uh, say, school boards, or the legislature tells school boards what to do. So here's, an, here's a quote from the case Isursovi Pocatello Education Association from the Supreme Court in 2009. That was a First Amendment case, but the analysis is the same. Um, a private corporation enjoys constitutional protections, but a political subdivision created by a state for the better ordering of government has no privileges or immunities under the federal constitution, which it may invoke in opposition to the will of its creator. So that law authorizes uh, lawsuits against a school board 
but uh, that's just the government, state government, kind of telling its uh, uh, subdivisions that they have to do certain things. And I don't think the due process vagueness doctrine applies here. Now, to be sure, of course, that also applies to government employees who are ordinary people. They're not political subdivisions. But at least in K through 12 schools, the answer rightly or wrongly may be different in colleges, public colleges and universities. But as to K through 12 schools, generally speaking, employees speaking on behalf of the government as teachers are in a classroom, don't have First Amendment rights, or I would say due process clause void for vagueness doctrine rights vis-a-vis the government when the government tells them what to do. So one example is you could have a state statute that says teachers shall not be rude to parents. And if they are rude, they might be fired even. You know, maybe that's a little on the vague side, but I don't think that's, that it's going to be started on as unconstitutionally vague. Uh, likewise, if the statute says teachers may be fired for poor quality education. If somebody says you can be thrown in prison for offering a poor quality education, that's clearly unconstitutionally vague. But when this is a guideline for government employees, then it seems to me even phrases that are that vague just are not unconstitutional. Uh, when you're talking about the government telling employees either of the state or of state subdivisions such as local governments uh, what uh, what to say. So that's why I'm pretty skeptical that a void for vagueness doc, uh, argument or a First Amendment argument would work here. Now, there is, of course, also the separate question of the First Amendment rights of students, but the Supreme Court has made clear that the government is entitled to control school curriculum, notwithstanding any First Amendment rights of students. That's in the PICO case. I think majority of the court agreed on that. So, you know, if a student says, you know, I feel I have a First Amendment right to get in to get education on any subject, let's say free speech clause right to get education on any any subject, the answer is always no. It's up to the to the government to decide what education to offer. You know, you could certainly have a First Amendment right to acquire this information outside the public school or maybe even in the public school library. That's an interesting question. But when it comes to the curriculum, it's for the government to set. The last point I want to mention, just because it came up, and of course, we'll have plenty more opportunity, I'm sure, to to, to focus on the constitutional questions is, well, is this an equal protection violation uh, of equal protection rights of gay, lesbian, transgender uh, parents and children and such? I don't think so. I don't think that the equal protection clause controls school curriculum. If the school wanted to teach, not that I would encourage it to teach, but wanted to teach that, look, same-sex marriage is constitutionally protected, but we're not in favor of it. And we would like people, more people to be to be straight than gay. Even if some people don't have a choice in this, if you're bi, we would like you to be, to, to, if you're bi in preference, you would like you to be straight in action. That's not something I would encourage the government to do. And in fact, under this law, the government wouldn't be allowed to do it in the first three grades or later, uh, except c- consistent with state standards, when I hope state standards wouldn't allow that. Uh, but I don't think there would be anything unconstitutional about it. I think the government can express preferences for uh, certain sexual orientations or, or sexual identities. And I think to the extent the government controls its own curriculum to reflect that, it seems to me that that's not unconstitutional. Although if that were what was happening, then it may very well be unwise. Lots to respond to, uh, Joshua, including Eugene's claims that first, when a state government tells a subdivision what to do, the void for vagueness doctrine doesn't apply. Employees speaking on behalf of the government don't have First Amendment rights or void for vagueness rights. The government is entitled to control school curriculum, notwithstanding the First Amendment rights of students. And there's no equal protection violation as well. Your response? 
Of course, you know, and, and I should say, first of all, there's a lot there, so I'm, I probably won't get to all of it, and I, I apologize. Second, I, I just want to emphasize how much I appreciate Professor Bullock's thoroughness and thoughtfulness about this. I just want to, it's sort of worth pausing to say that I'm about to say some things that are pretty sharply critical of what he just said, but I want to highlight that, you know, one of the things I love about this podcast is that it models a form of civic discourse on these types of issues that is, I think, so often lacking. Um, and certainly the polemics on the left and right about this law, some of them have been quite extreme. Um, in my view, particular, I don't, I don't view there as a moral equivalence between people on the left worrying about a don't say gay law and people on the right accusing all gay people of being groomers or pedophiles. So I don't think there's a moral equivalence in the extremeness of the discourse around this. Um, the right wing discourse around this has endangered the very lives and safety of LGBTQ people and their children. But um, but I would highlight that I, I do think this way of talking about it uh, is such a virtue. Uh, and and I, so I do appreciate what Professor Bullock said. That said, I have to admit, I, I'm not moved by a fair amount of it, as you might expect. Um, and I guess where I would start, though, because I do want to start with where we agree, is we do agree that schools have broad control over their curriculum. We do agree that the government has broad control over what its employees say in their capacity as public employees. We do agree that students do not in general have a constitutional right to demand a particular curriculum um, with some important exceptions that I'll talk about. And we do agree that laws that are standards are permissible, that not, you know, you don't need to understand every jot and tittle and every conceivable application of a statute for it to be constitutional. If that were the case, the Supreme Court would be out of business because they spend most of their time trying to interpret some pretty complicated laws. So there is some common ground. Where I think we differ is that I think there are some limitations on those principles um, that Professor Volokh probably agrees in some, maybe, maybe we agree they exist in theory and we disagree on whether they apply here. But I do think there are some limitations. And I'd like to start, I'm going to try to work in reverse order of the points that the professor made. Um, but I want to start with this point, which is that he didn't actually give an answer to any of my hypotheticals nor has he explained how you would answer most of the hypotheticals we pose in our complaint. And, uh, you know, and if he gave an answer, I have to admit, I missed it. You know, he, he thinks that a teacher sitting at a desk behind a picture of their spouse is probably okay. Maybe that's the one I identified that he responded to. I have to tell you, there are a lot of parents in Florida who I'm sure won't agree with that. And there are some people who wrote this law who definitely think that's not okay. And, you know, th this idea that a lot of really hard questions are going to come up, but like, let's just leave it to the judiciary and hope for the best over the next few years is something that will be extremely cold comfort to, you know, parents like me who are sending their children to school and don't want their children to get a second rate or a skim milk education because they're made to feel like outcasts and they're made to feel like their families are different and less than, or because they're made to feel like their families can't even be talked about and their existence and their integrity can't even be acknowledged in schools. You know, when you think about Obergefell and Windsor, major premises of those decisions were not about just the integrity of same-sex marriages, but about their children and about the families they form. And this is a law that is designed in purpose and that will, in effect, risk subjecting the families, say LGBTQ families uh, and children in schools, to, to real concrete disadvantage uh, in an environment where the goal should be to create an open, welcome environment that socializes people and allows them to grow and, and, and become educated. Um, there's, there's a risk that it will, it will reinforce and draw some pretty ugly lines. So that's, that's the first point I would make. And, you know, there's a lot of other hypotheticals I could give. Can a parent, like I said, talk about their, their, their loving spouse at the career day? And that the answer seems to be, well, it depends on how much they say. You know, if you have students that are bullying each other on, on overtly homophobic grounds, can the teacher respond to that other than to generically say that bullying is bad? 
right? If a student says in class, I think all gay people should burn in hell, is the teacher allowed to offer any response to that at all? Or do they just have to be quiet for fear that someone's going to sue them when they say something in response? You know, and, and the example that Professor Volat gave, which was, well, let's think about how we handle religion. I have to admit, I thought it was an interesting one because the way we think about religion now, and this might change at the, at the Supreme Court, but the way we've thought about religion for some time in this country is that teachers can teach about religion. They can identify religious diversity. They can celebrate religious diversity in classes. They can talk about and teach about things like what, what is Hanukkah? What is Easter? It'd be weird if, there were, if, if, if a student said, it's Christmas, what's that? And the teacher were like, I can't tell you. Uh, you know, what they can't do is proselytize. And what they can't do is engage in overtly sectarian religious behavior in the classroom that disenfranchises or alienates students. And, you know, I don't know of a lot of gay people who come into the class and want to, you know, we're not talking about a circumstance where you have uh, a teacher teaching about the existence of same-sex marriages, where you have teachers talking about the sort of existence and reality of LGBTQ people and their families. I don't think of that as proselytizing. I think of that as falling on the same side of the line that we think of as when, when schools are able to teach and talk about religion and to acknowledge and welcome religious diversity. And the instinct, I have to admit, that you hear from some of the people who enacted this law is they think that by their very mere presence or by the mere acknowledgement of the reality of LGBTQ people, they are doing something like proselytizing. The words they use are grooming or predating or recruiting, right? It's the same instinct that somehow the very presence or reality of LGBTQ people is somehow nefarious, somehow trying to win people over to the cause I have to admit that strikes me as just prejudicial and unfounded for many reasons. Um, But but when you think about the religion sexual orientation analogy, I would just emphasize, I actually think it can be a very productive one. And that the way that we think about schools allowing people to talk about and instruct on and welcome religious diversity without proselytizing um, is maybe a useful model for the way we would think about this. But let me just offer some very, very quick points about Professor Volokh's point. The, fir- the first is that on the equal protection side, I'll work backwards. His, what, what, you, what I took the professor to be saying is that the school basically can express an anti-gay message um, or an anti-trans or an anti-bi message. It just can't, in, in fact, discriminate against students. Title IX uh, federal law would prohibit that, and Title VII would prohibit it as to their teachers and public employees. I wonder if the professor feels that the school could have as its official curriculum that like white people are better than black people or that one uh, ethnic group is better than another. I'm assuming he doesn't. I hope he doesn't. If he doesn't. No, I, doesn't. I, I don't believe that's unconstitutional. It would be a very bad idea. But I just want to make clear, I don't think that's unconstitutional. Fine. OK, then look, then maybe you and I just disagree on this, which is that I, I do think the Establishment Clause and the Equal Protection Clause impose some limits on government speech. The Supreme Court has acknowledged that in numerous cases. Many justices of the court have done so. And the idea that when the government speaks, it can express whatever message it wants, especially in public schools where it's shaping the next generation of citizens, is one that to me is deeply concerning. But look, if that's our disagreement, it is what it is. You think that schools can do that. I don't think they can constitutionally. I think a lot of law supports me on that. Um, and, I, you know, and, and sort of that is what it is. On the vagueness and the First Amendment points, again, I read the same cases you do. You know, my reading of them is that where the state lacks a legitimate pedagogical purpose or where it acts with the intent to discriminate on the basis of protected characteristics or where it acts on the basis of an impermissible ground, it really does hit up against the outer limits of its power to shape the curriculum in the school environment. Uh, and that when designing a curriculum, there are some lines that can't be crossed. And we think this is that extreme law that does hit up against those lines. 
especially given the apparent expectation of those who drafted it, that it won't apply to sexual orientation generally or to gender identity generally, but that it will, in fact, narrowly target for singling out and exclusion specific sexual orientations and gender identity and the children of people who, who come from that who come from that background. And so we, we think we have a, a pretty strong constitutional case here that we're prepared to, to present to the court. Uh, Eugene, I hear you and Joshua disagreeing first about whether the Equal Protection Clause imposes limits on the messages that schools can offer to their students, as well as whether the vagueness and First Amendment doctrines limit a state when it lacks a va- valid pedagogical purpose. Um, from crossing certain curricular lines. What is your response? And do you think there are any limits to what a legislature can compel a school to teach or not? Let me just just step back and uh, let's think about the question of curriculum. Somebody's got to decide what's going to be taught in the classroom. It could be a teacher. And in fact, in universities, that's been the practice. that The teacher generally decides with very, very loose guidance or uh, what's going to be taught in the classroom and how it's going to be taught. It could be the principal. Uh, but I'm sorry. So that, 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 so you, you could have that. That's generally not the approach that K through 12 schools take. Although they often do leave considerable discretion to the teacher just because micromanaging can be ineffective in various ways. Could be the principal. The principal could either say in the first instance, here's how you teach things and here's what you teach, or could say, look, you can teach how you like, but if I don't like it, then I'll tell you to change. It could be the local school board. It could be the state legislature. There are great public policy arguments for any one of those positions. But I think as a constitutional matter, I don't think there's any constitutional right of the teacher to make that decision. I think that the teacher is an agent of the state, an employee of the state. To the extent he's an employee of the local school board, that is a subdivision of the state. And there's basically uh, the First Amendment does not speak to who makes that decision. Now, it is true that the Establishment Clause has been read as limiting the power of anybody, whether the teacher or the uh, school board or the state legislature or the principal, uh, limiting their power to advocate for or perhaps against any particular religion. Uh, You can debate whether that's right or wrong, but in any event, that's been quite limited to religion. As to the Equal Protection Clause, I know people have made this argument. A former colleague of mine, a very prominent law professor, uh, made the argument that, uh, uh, for example, including the Confederate flag uh, on uh, some state flags is unconstitutional because it conveys a racist message. I don't think courts have generally accepted that. Courts have read the Establishment Clause as limiting teaching in favor or against a particular religion, but I don't think they have as the Equal Protection Clause. This may end up being a tremendously important issue. Because at least some of the things that some people are, want to see taught in schools about white privilege, and in some situations, at least the argument is white guilt for certain kinds of, uh, uh, kinds of past, past actions, are perceived, rightly or wrongly, but are perceived by some as being racist against whites. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I think we've already begun to see lawsuits along these lines, and we certainly will see more claiming that a school may not teach racial responsibility or racial guilt or other things that a reasonable person would perceive as reflecting badly on whites or certainly reflecting badly on blacks and Asians and and others as well. Uh, I am not the supporter of those kinds of lawsuits. I'm not a supporter of teaching about white privilege in school either, but that's my own particular position. I just don't think the First Amendment or the Equal Protection Clause speaks to the question of what theories 
can be taught. Likewise, with regard to sex, you know, there are definitely differences between men and women as a statistical matter, certainly physical, possibly mental as well. It's an interesting question. And if a school were to try to teach that men are better than uh, women at some things and women better than men at other things, I wouldn't be wild about the school doing that, but I don't think the Equal Protection Clause speaks to that. Conversely, if a state legislature wants to pass a law saying we do not allow any of our public schools to teach certain things with regard to race or with regard to sex, I don't think the First Amendment speaks to that either. I think that the setting of the curriculum, even with regard to hot topic issues such as race and sex and sexual orientation and gender identity, is a matter for the political process. Again, with religion, the court, rightly or wrongly, said that's different because of the establishment of religion clause. But setting that aside, it's a matter for the political process. The political process might screw up in very serious ways on this. But I don't think that that either the First Amendment or the Equal Protection Clause authorizes judges to say, well, no, this way of setting the curriculum is racist or sexist or uh, or uh, anti-gay or whatever else whether it's racist against blacks or whites or anybody else. Joshua, Eugene has argued that with the exception of the Establishment Clause, uh, the First Amendment does not limit or speak about what theories can be taught in schools, nor does the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, As you listen to him, is that the nub of your disagreement? Tell us why you disagree and and what what limits you think the Supreme Court has and would impose. And maybe I'll put on the table now a Mississippi law which has passed and prohibits K through 12 and higher education institutions from directing or compelling students to adopt or affirm certain ideas related to sex, race, ethnicity, religion, or national origin, or make distinctions or classifications of students on the basis of race. How how, how do you think we, the people listeners, should think about a law like that? Sure, all, all good questions. And you know, this has been a productive discussion. I think the contours of the disagreement are, are coming out. And, you know, there are reasoned arguments on both sides of this. I'll do what Professor Volk has done on a few and just take a step back, right? So this this law was enacted supposedly in the name of parental rights. The, the animating instinct behind the law, as explained by its proponents, is that they don't want schools to be in a position of teaching or instructing students on certain things. The difficulty is that when a, when a school is prohibited from potentially even acknowledging the existence of LGBTQ people and their families or from uh, welcoming them into the community, that is itself not neutral. And it actually works great harm to the many other parents who also have rights and to the children who also have rights who want to be educated in an environment that isn't discriminatory and that doesn't, through word and deed, express that they are second-class citizens that are unworthy of being treated with respect. And it's unfortunate to think of this in terms of a clash of rights, you know, and and maybe a a different way of coming at it is to say that, you know, schools do have broad control over curriculum. You know, Professor Volokh is right. Someone has to decide what gets taught. Generally speaking, that shouldn't be federal judges. However, there are circumstances where where federal courts need to step in because the Constitution isn't so indifferent, um, as the professor suggests, to what happens in public schools. The Establishment Clause is a classic setting where that has been the case. Um, He and I read the cases differently. I think it's pretty clear that the Equal Protection Clause does apply in in school settings. And, you know, the the world we would live in if it didn't is potentially concerning one, especially as we live in a more divided society with more polarization and an increasing distrust among some of the communities in this country toward each other. 
Because, you know, a circumstance where every local school board or every state can sort of without limit adopt as its curriculum that you should fear and despise and dislike and treat worse or even refuse to acknowledge the existence of people that a majority of people in that school district don't like would, would be, I think it's fair to say, pretty destructive for our democracy. And that, you know, it, every parent has the right to raise their kids. Um, and, you know, it's not like schools are meant to usurp that role. Um, and parents ha- continue to have important involvement in schools. But one of the things that schools do in our democracy is sort of help create a shared foundation and socialize people into citizenship and inculcate very basic values and introduce us to people who aren't like us and give us the opportunity to figure out who they are and who we are and how we're going to live together in a diverse, pluralistic society. You know, and the, the, the understanding of the Constitution and of the school system that Professor Volokh is describing is one that would really be at cross purposes with that understanding. And that I think would invite some really unfortunate trends as we think about what it means to live together in our country. And, you know, the, the wave of laws that we've seen recently, um, uh, challenge, you know, laws like this, you know, so-called don't say gay law in Florida, other laws that are meant to signal a repudiation of schools having, uh, talking about or having views on, on protected characteristics of various kinds. You know, look, I, my attitude about this is to step back a little bit, at least because, you know, in, in the context of this case, I think it's fairly clear. Parents do not have a right. Schools do not have a right. No one has a right to use public schools to target and discriminate against group other groups that are protected under the Constitution. Nor do they have a right to require schools to teach counterfactual information. Right. It, it'd be weird to think that, you know, there, you can force schools to teach that one plus one is three. And it's equally weird to have, you know, to, to think that you could tell schools to to say, you know, we can't acknowledge or recognize the reality of LGBTQ people and their families. There have to be some limits. And here, I think what we see is that there's a constitutional floor. And the professor and I disagree on maybe whether that floor exists and what it is. Um, but, but to me, again, just stepping back, you know, this, this statute creates a lot of confusion about what can and can't be said in schools by a, a great many people. It does so in a way that seems calculated to disadvantage and to exclude and subordinate LGBTQ people and their families. You know, the Equal Protection Clause imposes limitations on that. Those limitations apply against the government everywhere, not only in some settings, and the schools are a setting where the government acts. And to allow laws like this to proliferate in a wide range of settings is to invite social discord and to entrench forms of division and misunderstanding in the next generation that, in my mind, would be radically disruptive and harmful to our ability to live together Uh, in a society where we have to acknowledge and at least respect and live with constitutionally protected differences. Eugene, the last word in this very illuminating discussion is to you. If you could uh, tell us what you think about the Mississippi law, which prohibits schools from directing or compelling students to affirm or adopt certain ideas about race, sex, religion, and ethnicity, and more broadly, whether you think the Equal Protection Clause imposes any limits uh, on the ability to tell schools what to teach in the way that Joshua describes. Sure. So I haven't looked closely at the Mississippi law, and I can't speak to it as a policy matter as a result, but I know enough to say that, yes, a uh, legislature is entitled to tell at least public K-12 schools. The analysis may be different, rightly or wrongly, but there's certainly precedent suggesting it's different for colleges and universities. But that it may say to K through, uh, public K-12 schools, here is what you can and can't teach about race. And it may be unwise, 
but that's left to the political process. More broadly, I think that a lot of the things that Mr. Matz points to, which are potentially serious problems, are left to the political process, where a lot of different considerations need to be taken into account. So some people think that it's really important that public schools teach certain things with regard to, say, sexual orientation or gender identity to, to affirm the presence of people like that and to say that, 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 that it's good that they are the way they are uh, and that that brings more social cohesion. Other people take the view that having schools talk about these kinds of highly controversial issues in which we know there's a huge amount of, uh, of disagreement diminishes social cohesion and leads people to want to pull their children out of public schools and maybe send them to private schools or set up, or set up other or systems for having more such private schools and that that will end up ca causing more kind of balkanization. Other people actually think more private schools is actually better for social cohesion. These are interesting and difficult questions. I don't think the Constitution leaves them to federal judges. I think that they are generally speaking for the political process. Among other things, let's look at even one particular thing that as I hope I recalled Mr. Matz's point correctly, um, that uh, the government can't kind of sharply criticize or condemn people based on their exercise of constitutional rights or um, uh, their constitution, uh, constitutionally protected categories. Well, in fact, there are various constitutionally protected categories, including political ideology that, you know, the government does condemn. Uh, do people have a First Amendment right to believe that there is no global warming? They have every First Amendment right to believe it. They have a First Amendment right to say it. First Amendment right to join such organizations. But does that mean that a school can't say oh, well, you know, that's a wrong view. And people who believe that are wrongheaded or even harmful to society. I think a school would have that right. I would hope that the school, to the extent it does that, it does that in a sensitive way that kind of brings in more students rather than, uh, uh, rather than um, alienates them. And maybe that's good reason for it not to do that. And of course, there are lots of possibilities with regard to global warming and what the possible solutions are and such that you know, maybe the school shouldn't be too ideological about it. But I think uh, we do allow that. Likewise, you know, I'm a supporter of Second Amendment rights. The Supreme Court has said you have a right to own a gun. But if a school district wanted to teach kids that you know, gun ownership is bad and gun owners are, are kind of uh, sus people. I, I don't think that would be a good idea, but I don't think there's anything unconstitutional about that. Uh, so, so I think there are many bad ideas. There are many foolish ideas. There are many ideas that at least there's a good case are bad or foolish, although other people might think that they actually are beneficial in various ways that are left to the political process. And I think the design of the school K through 12 school curriculum is one of them, even with regard to matters such as race, sexual orientation, sex, and, the, and political ideology and gun ownership uh, advocacy and the like. Um, and uh, the Establishment Clause has been a narrow exception, but it has been tied to the fact there is an establishment of religion clause and not an establishment of ideology or establishment of sexual orientation or whatever else uh, clause. So I'm, I'm inclined to think that this is the kind of thing, one of very, very many kinds of things where uh, it's not a question for judges, but a question for voters and for legislators. Thank you so much, Joshua Matz and Eugene Volek, for a civil, thoughtful, and illuminating discussion on a hotly contested and difficult constitutional question. As you both suggested, you've provided a model for 
thoughtful debate about difficult constitutional issues. Joshua, Eugene, thank you so much for joining We the People. Thank you so much thank for having us. And uh, uh, Mr. Matz, uh, thank you so much for, uh, uh, for, for participating. It's been such a pleasure to discuss this. The same to you, Professor. It's been a, an honor to have this discussion with you. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell and engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Kevin Klontz, Ruben Aguirre, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. Uh, No plug for donations this week except to say that they're always appreciated, and what's most appreciated is your engagement in our wonderful community of lifelong learning. It's such a privilege to share it with you every week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.